Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. How good is it though to be together again out of lockdown? Um, I don't know how you guys felt about lockdown, but having two, uh, two kids, one and three years old, is terrible. Lockdown is terrible, but it's because you want to get out and about. But I think just uh, above it all, I don't know if you felt this, but the kind of the fear that can come with lockdown, you know, the fear that can come through anything that can harm your health or impact you. But um, it's one of those things that I experienced fear because of my medical condition, because I have um, because I had a heart attack last year. Because of my medical condition, there's I'm more fearful about things when they arise, like COVID and whatnot. But I know that you know God is above all things. We we are wise. We take care of ourselves. We wash our hands. We wear masks. We care for those around us. But it's the state of your soul and your mind that God can really help and deal with. That it says in the Word that perfect love casts out all fear. And so, in times of lockdown, instead of leaning into the fear, I think it's time for us to lean into God's love. His love that died for us on the cross, his love that showed that he was going to take on something for us and take off something from us so that we could be set free. That is not my sermon, though, so I don't want to get too far that way. But I just want to say, like, and how good is it that there are, two, that there are twins coming to this church? Like, and Tim as well. Like, uh, both times that we've heard about the twins coming, Megs and I have just laughed, you know, because it's like these people are like, oh, we'd love to have kids. And then God's like, bam, have two. And it's like one of those things that we just laughed at it. We just laughed. But it's joyful. It's a joyful thing. And we need to hold on to these things, yeah? All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue the series this week. We actually have found out who our next storyteller, though, is. So uh, we will have the next storyteller on the 25th of July. And we're going to have the amazing Nisha Joseph come and share some stories with us. So we're really excited about that. That's our series there. But this exegesis, and I'm not going to pay too much attention to the pun or the the play on word because I'm very happy with it. But what I'll do is I'll do a quick recap because for those who aren't here uh, or weren't here last week or weren't with us on Facebook online um, to know what's going on. Yeah, when you pray, it says in the Bible, never stop praying. Do you know what? Let's just, let's just go with it. <laughs> let's just go with it. <laughs> it's, so Hebrews 4.12, this is what we're talking about. Because when we're talking about exegesis, we're talking about the tool of Bible study and understand Jesus through the biblical narrative. So what we want to do is we want to use a, the, the tool of exegesis, spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, to unpack and understand Jesus more. Who wants to understand Jesus more? Hands up. Who wants Jesus to transform their life? I want that. That's all I want. But so what we're going to talk about is how we can use the Word of God, the Bible, to help transform our lives. 
to to create a pathway there. So Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible that you read is alive. The Bible that you read as a spirit-filled person, it becomes alive to you. It says in the word that those who do not have the spirit do not understand spiritual things. The Bible is a spiritual thing. So when the, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we start to read the Bible, it becomes alive. How good is that? Because some people just say it's a historic text. Some people just say it's an old book. It is one of the, I think it is the most, the highest selling book in the world. Um, I think up there is Rick Warren with A Purpose-Driven Life. But anyway, we're not going to read that over the Bible. So then what we talked about is studying exegesis and eisegesis. Does anyone remember what exegesis means simply? He wants to yell it out. What does exegesis mean? To lead out of. So when you read the Bible, what you're doing is an explanation or exposition of the text based on a careful objective analysis. The word exegesis literally means to lead out of. That means that the interpreter is led to conclusions by following the text. So it's careful reading and ultimately the text means that the text author meant uh, that ultimately the text means what the text's author meant when they wrote it and so what we have to do or what we can do when we do exegesis is we follow a four-step plan of observation so we observe the text what does it say we interpret it what does it mean we correlate it we find out how does it relate to the rest of the bible and we apply it how does this passage affect my life um, I'm going fairly quickly if this is your first time. So if you want to, on our website, we'll be able to uh, link you um, the video of me going through this a, a lot more in depth. But for those who have been here before, um, thank you for listening to this again. Then the, the other one is eisegesis. And who knows what eisegesis meant? To lead into. So simply put, it means reading into a text. The opposite approach to scripture of exegesis is eisegesis, which is the interpretation of a passage based on a subjective, non-analytical reading. The word eisegesis literally means to lead into, which means the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making it mean whatever they want it to mean. You know, I, I gave an example. When you receive a text message from someone, you can read into it whatever you want it, dependent on how you're feeling that day, dependent on what you ate, dependent on how you were treated by your best friend or your family, dependent on your mental health. Like the way that you read something is going to be influenced by who you are. So the lens that you put on is created by your past experiences, your culture, your gender, your mental health, the whole of who you are. It impacts how you interpret the biblical text. So the process of eisegesis is to, and we, and we basically we want to exegete when we study the Bible. We don't want to eisegete. So don't look at this and be like, "Sweet, I do that." You know, more so be like, "Okay, this is what it means when I do this." So basically, we 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 go through imagination, 
what idea do I want to present? Exploration. We search the Bible to find a passage that fits with our idea and then application. We, we basically apply what we wanted to do anyway to our lives without actually going through the filter of the biblical text. And so ultimately our interpretation of what was written in the Bible is not correct unless it is the interpretation that the author assigned to it when it was written. So we don't want to eisegete. What do we want to do? Exegete. We don't want to eisegete. We want to exegete. And so that's what we're going to do right now. So what we have is I've chosen a passage for you. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. This, Bible, this passage is found in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So if you want to open your Bible, you can. If you just want to look at it on the screen, you can as well. But Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. And like I mentioned on the video last week, is I use the ESV version which is a translation of the bible that is true to form so the original language as opposed to true to function which is the interpretation of an idea so i I read an esv so what we're going to be looking into is something that was more directly linked to what the actual words that were written not the idea of it so the passage like i was saying is central to christology I like leaving sermons feeling smarter. I like feeling smarter when I go away from church, like I've learned something. And Christology is the study of Jesus Christ. So Christos, Logos. Logos, the study of Christos, Christ. So if you ever see anything that says ology, it means the study of. So coffeeology, the study of coffee. No, that's not true, but like... But the Latin for it is Theos Logos, the study of um, the word, theology, Christology, the study of Jesus Christ. So this is central to that. So we're going to be reading from this. And like I said um, last time, uh, when we go into this, this passage, what you really want to be doing before you exegete a passage is to read it a couple of times. And you probably want to read the whole book, not just the passage that I've taken out of this book. We want to read the whole book and we want to meditate on it. We want to pray about it. We want to look into different translations of the Bible. You really want to put a bit of effort, time and effort into it. But like I said, I, I can do this on your behalf because this is a sermon. But the cool thing about this one is that I actually got to crack open some of my commentaries. You know, So the stuff that you buy for Bible college and never use and outside of Bible college. So I got to crack open my commentaries, do a bit of background research. So everything that I mentioned to you in this time is not going to be able to be observed purely by looking at these six verses because there was some research done into that. So I just wanted to give a bit of a heads up there. But what we're going to do is read Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Who's ready? Who's ready? Cool. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, uh, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind. So this 2, 5 to 11 is the significant part. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied. The word there is kenosis, emptied, kenosis, emptied himself by taking the form. The word there is formu, Greek, formu, uh, by the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. He likes that passage. That's just oh, like an oomph. Like, oh, that's such a good passage. And it's one of the ones I actually... Um, through my studies, I got the opportunity to study this one and to do exegesis into this. So for me to do this now, it just became richer and richer because every time you, you, you dig in a little bit further, there's more to it. God is, the, the Word of God is alive. It's alive. So what we, like I was saying, when we exegete this passage, we have a step, like four steps Observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. So what's the first thing that we're going to do? Observe. Let us observe. And these are the questions that we ask ourselves, the five W's. So if you ever come up to a passage and you're reading it and you want to understand the context, you have the five W's. Sorry, Nisha, I'm in your way. Who, what, where, when, why. So if you ever want just to be like, I've forgotten how to exegete the passage, just the five W's, who, where, what, when, why. And just look at it and ask those questions, and then it will unpack so much for you. So what we're going to do is I'm going to run that through that with you, and we're going to look at the application together. And I've got a special um, something I want us to do with the application at the end. So the first question is, who is involved so the book of Philippians, what we want to do is we want to look at it as a whole so we can then focus in on this part. Who is involved? Who knows who wrote the book of Philippians? Just yell it out. Paul. Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Paul was one of the greatest people in the Bible, the, Old, the New Testament, but he was also the, someone who knew the most redemption. Because not long before this, his ministry was only 12 years before his ministry started, he was killing the very people he came to preach the gospel to. He was killing those very people. So who else was involved in this? Was this letter written to someone? Yes, because it is a letter. Like I mentioned, the book of Philippians is a letter to the church in Philippi. So the, the, the Philippian church is involved here. And who else is involved? Well, we go through the passage, Jesus. Jesus is involved. You know, if we look at it, it talks about Jesus, even though he was God, did not count it as something to be like equality, you know. Yeah, I paraphrase that. But basically, the church of Philippi is involved, Paul is involved, and Jesus is involved in this one. And the thing about this is when we're looking at it, it's not all happening in one moment. It's, we don't know when this book was written or, or sorry, was read, but we know that this is 
who's involved in this particular passage. Who wants a fun fact about the church of Philippi? Fun fact, the church of Philippi is one of the few churches that um, is known that it was started by women. So they're down by a city uh, in the city of Philippi, and the, uh, the a women were having a prayer meeting, a group of women were having a prayer meeting outside the city by a river. Paul came by, saw them, and said, hey, we believe in Jesus. Can we preach the gospel of Jesus to you? A woman named Lydia said, yes. We believe they were converted and said, come use my house as your sanctuary. That was where the church of Philippi grew from. The house of a woman, he said, hey, come into my house. And that's actually happened more than once. And it's like, if you look through it, like, it's just a fun fact. I just think that's so cool for us to look into a book that is so old and that is so, it's still alive, but the society has shifted and changed to see that women were at the forefront of the gospel from a very, very early age. All right. Second thing we, quite, we ask is what? What are they doing? So, when, like I was saying, the timeline here we, is a bit harder, but we can basically assume or very well correctly assume that Paul wrote a letter. Is that true? Paul wrote a letter to the church of Philippi. And the, if you know, that, like I was saying, that the church of Philippi was established by Paul. And the thing about this letter and uh, churches back in the, in the Bible is that a lot of these churches, a lot of people would be, some people would be educated and some people would not be educated. So you'd have some people who'd know how to read, then you'd have a lot of people who'd not know how to read. So what they would do with these letters is they would read them out in a public place. So it's basically, I would get up in front of you, get a letter, and then just read it out to you. That's the letter, the letter of Paul to the church in Philippi. So what was the likelihood of what was happening is that someone at some point stood up in front of the congregation and read this, the, the letter of Philippi to the church of the Philippi. All right. So the other thing, most importantly, what are they doing in this passage is Paul is detailing the, the example of Christ's humility. He's detailing the, the example of Christ's humility. And what he did is he showed the timeline of Jesus, who is God, and he's coming from heaven to earth to the cross. So what are they doing in this? There's a letter being read out from Paul to the church of Philippi, and Paul is detailing the timeline of God from heaven in the form of Jesus, Jesus born, Jesus' servant, Jesus die. And there we are. He, he has now become the name above all names. So that's what he's doing. Third part. Who feels like they know this from the, the past few times that we've done this? Who feels like they're getting a bit more confident to go through an exegesis? I don't know if you saw, even if you want, you want to have access to this, we have a Freedom Family group page, and on there I wrote an exege exegesis cheat sheet. So if you ever want to know, oh, how can I do this? I've literally taken all the stuff that you need to know, um, the real skeleton of it, and put it in a, a Word document for you. The third question is, where are they? So the thing about this is this passage needs to be answered in parts because the letter was written from one party to another. So if I'm in Huntingdale and I wrote a letter to someone in Gosnells, they'll be in two different places. They'll be in the same city, actually, but they'll be in two different places. 
So what we need to do is answer this in part. So we'll answer this. The church. Where was the church? Philippi. The church was in Philippi. That's the people who received the letter. And like I was saying, we don't actually know when they read it. So I can't say at this point, on uh, this time, at this day, at this place, they read the letter. All I can say is that there, the likelihood is that they were in Philippi when they received this letter. So when they read it, like I was saying, we don't know where it was, but we do know where Paul was when he wrote the letter. Does anyone have any history or understanding of where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was, some scholars believe he was in a, either in Ephesus. Some scholars, or well, majority of scholars believe that Paul was actually in a Roman prison when he wrote this letter. So Paul was in a prison. The church was in Philippi. Paul was in a prison. And then we want to talk about Jesus because Jesus is the answer. What's the question? At this point, Jesus had died. So this book was written, and I'll explain, uh, when, uh, give you the exact dates later. He had died, been resurrected, and had already ascended to heaven, which believed was believed to have happened 40 days after his resurrection. So this passage, much like ourselves, is being read by the Philippians in retrospect. The Philippians about Jesus, they're not reading it being like, this is Jesus, this is a live Facebook update. No, they're like, they're reading about Jesus in, through a letter from Paul in retrospect. And so like, like us, we're working out our faith. We want to know Jesus. We want to understand how he can change our lives. The Philippian church was very similar. They were just a lot closer to it than, than what we are now. But they were, very uh, they were figuring it out, just trying to understand Jesus. All right, the fourth question. When did this happen? What happened before? What will happen afterwards? So this letter was written by Paul in 62 AD. So another fun fact, AD does not mean after death. AD, BC means before Christ. AD does not mean after death. It actually means in Latin, anno domini, which means in the year of the Lord. So 62 years after, sorry, anno domini, AD, it's probably about 30, around 30 years after Jesus' death. So there's belief that this Paul was written to the Philippian church about 30 years after Jesus' uh, – sorry, 60 years after Jesus' death. What's that? After his birth, yes, after his birth. But when, like I said, when the Philippian church read it, it's very hard to determine. So the next question we ask is what happened before – Paul wrote this letter. So Paul had actually been preaching the gospel of Jesus in Rome, hence him being in prison in Rome. So he was there for two years in that prison. And Paul had, been, had visited the Philippian church 10 years before he wrote the letter. So it's likely he hadn't been back there. You know, back in the day, in the, in the Bible times, these churches, like you couldn't just send an email, you couldn't just drive down the road. It would take sometimes months to years for a letter or to travel to a different place. So when imagine just the weight that needs to be in a letter. It's like I've got one shot in this 10-year period to get a message to you that you need to hear. Imagine the absolute weight 
on that. So Paul was in prison. He'd been there for about two years. And afterwards, uh, Paul died about six years later. He was executed six years later. And he wrote Philemon 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus um, after he wrote Philippians. So what he was doing is Paul was a was known to be a church establisher. He would go and establish churches around the different Europe, Asia. And what he's doing here, What when did this happen? What happened is he was preaching and when he wrote this letter, he was in prison and he was wanting to write a letter, which is what we'll talk about now, is why is this happening? What happened to lead up to this event? So, fun fact, Paul is actually writing this letter back to the Philippians because he's thanking them for a gift of money. So it's in other, in other books like Corinthians and whatnot, he's writing because they're like, you are, you are churning, burning the church of God to the, the ground. You know, stop doing this. Stop fighting with each other. Stop like flirting with every single thing that moves. You know, stop doing this. In this situation, Paul's actually so moved by the humility and the love of the Philippian church that he's writing a letter to say to them, hey, thank you for sending money to support me. Whilst I have your ear, can I bring something else? Whilst I have your ear. One thing that we find about is that a lot of books, there's doc, a lot of letters that Paul wrote, there was doctrinal errors within the church that Paul was writing to address. In this situation, he's not. He's bringing encouragement and exhortation. And he's saying, you have moved me by your humility, by your love towards me. So I'm going to write a letter to you, and I'm going to also give you some amazing encouragement and exhortation at the same time. So that's uh, the observations. Like I was saying, I've, I've condensed it very quickly. But basically, if we could put it in a couple of sentences, Paul is writing a letter from prison to the church of Philippi about the humility of Jesus Christ. So I probably didn't need to say everything else I said before, but like to get there, we're upskilling, we're learning here to get there. That's how we got there. So then this is where things, this is where we sometimes struggle is when we jump into the next step of interpretation. Because interpretation can be so subjective. It can be so subjective. But when we talk about uh, interpretation, we're asking what does the passage mean? What is being said? So the interpretation of this passage is so much more than I'll actually be able to share during this time. Because like I was saying, this is the crux of the reality of the nature of Jesus Christ. This passage is focusing on that. So when Paul is really, but what what Paul is really wanting to do here and for us to interpret is the humility of Christ is his example. The humility of Christ is the example that I'm following. So as the father of the church, as the father of someone who's established your church, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So I have a really cool quote here, though. It's by an author and theologian called Frannick Fulks, and he says this, Your attitude could mean personal attitude or that which is expressed in relationships. Have this mind among yourselves. Let your bearings towards one another arise out of your life in Christ Jesus. Powerful words are used in this passage. The part, part, participle 
being comes from a stronger verb in the Greek than the normal verb to be. This is followed by a noun that is well translated by the NRV as in very nature. So be in your very nature like this. Jesus was truly God before he became a person. Then without ceasing to be God, he was willing to lay aside the glory of being equal with God. That was not something to be grasped. There is perhaps an intended contrast with Adam in Genesis 3 as the temptation to which he fell was wrongly to seize what he thought would make him like God. So if you see humans, humans are like, what will make me like God? Whereas this example that Christ is giving us is that I will put aside my that which makes me like God to come to earth in humility. So he made himself nothing. Literally, it says he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his glory. glory. What that means, doesn't, he didn't empty himself. It didn't say that he was not God anymore, but he emptied himself of the things that proved that he was God. His power. There's a, you know, on the cross, they're saying, if you were really God, call the angels to bring you down from the cross. When Jesus was in the desert being tempted for 40 days, they're like, turn this stone into bread. And Jesus said, no, I will not. He, the things that he could have done that, were, that sh- would show his glory, he chose. I will not do it because there is a bigger narrative at play here. So he made himself nothing. That's when it says he was made in human likeness and found in an appearance as a man. That does not mean merely means similarity without the reality of our human nature. He was indeed truly human. Paul says this is in Romans and Galatians, but the expression leaves room for the thought that the human likeness is not the whole story. He stooped lower still and became obedient to death. He lived a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying. That death, moreover, was death and across a death of unimaginable pain and utter shame, a curse in the eyes of the Jews because of what was said in the law in Deuteronomy. It says in Deuteronomy 21 verses 20, uh, 23, but also Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written in the law cursed is everyone who was hung on a pole jesus is the only name above names because he not only relinquished his glory and reputation but he became a curse for us to break the curse of sin on us let me say that again god who created you who made everything you see, who made your soul, your spirit, who puts air into your lungs, allows you to live. He came and relinquished his glory and his reputation. Then further going and becoming a servant to humans. Then going even further and becoming a curse so we could have the curse of sin broken off of us. I don't know if that's, is that landing? God himself came and did what we weren't able to do or willing to do, but what was necessary 
when we read Philippians 2 verses 1 to 4 again, it comes with a clear interpretation and encouragement and application. And do you think that once we read this part where it says Jesus became so low that maybe we can do what it says in Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11 where it says that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to also to the interests of others. If you look at what Jesus has done, and that he became a curse for us to break the curse of sin off of us. Then we read back into Philippians 2, 1 to 4. And then we say, okay, this isn't actually, Jesus isn't asking me to die on a cross. He's asking me to treat others the way I'd like to be treated. To put others first. To love each other and to be, keep humility and unity amongst ourselves. That shouldn't be hard. That shouldn't be hard when we see what Jesus has done. So what Jesus, what Paul was saying to the original readers, though, was that you're facing some problems. You're facing persecution in the church. You, what you're doing is you're having false teachers coming in and telling you a, separate, a different gospel. And what he's also saying is that there, there's, there's conflicts amongst yourself. So what he's saying is stand firm in one spirit. Philippians 1, 2 to 7, uh, 27 to 30. Stand firm in one spirit and contend as one man for faith of the gospel without being afraid of those who oppose you. He's encouraging them. He's saying there's something contrary to what you know. Stand firm in that faith. He's encouraging them to stand firm in face of persecution, to remain humble in adversity, and remain in unity and love. So what is the author saying to me now? Because that's obviously what we care about the most. What is he saying to me? He's saying Paul is encouraging us to stand firm in the face of persecution and opposition to our faith. Remain humble in adversity and to remain in unity and love. When people come and oppose you, your faith, when you face adversity, remain in unity with others. Stay humble and remain in love with others. Because these things are guaranteed. Do you know what's guaranteed? One of the few things that are guaranteed in the Bible is suffering. Fun times. One of the few things that's guaranteed in the Bible is suffering. You will have opposition and adversity. Who has had opposition, adversity, or hard time in the past two weeks? Me. I've had a hard time. I've struggled. Maybe past month, maybe past year, maybe you've had you're in a purple patch, you're doing well. But I guarantee you there will come a point in time where your faith is tested. The third thing we do is we correlate. How does this relate to the rest of the passage? Like us at the Bible, how do we need to bring things up from the rest of the Bible to complement and to clarify the truth that is within this passage? So there's some, I'll read a few out to you because there's 340 different cross-references in the Bible. Three, sorry, 340,000. 340,000 cross-references in the Bible. So I'll read a few out to you. 
But in the Bible, a few references we can get, or correlations we can make with this passage is that in Matthew twenty twenty six six it says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Luke twenty two twenty seven it says, For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am the one among you who serves? And it says, 1 Peter 2, verses 21, for to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So if we look into the Bible, there's correlation. There we see that what we're getting to remain humble, to stay in love, to treat others well, to put others first. That in hardship, we lean in, we don't lean out. We see there's correlation that it says it is greater to serve than to be served. It is greater to, be, to serve than to be served. And finally, the application, how should this affect my life? An application is a step of turning knowledge into action. So what I'm going to do now, because I know that there's been a lot of information unloaded on you here, just a bit of a, a theological vomit. What I want to do is I want to give you two minutes I'm going to ask you some leading questions. I want you to find one or two people near you. I want you to discuss what is an application that I can make from this life. And the questions I'm going to ask you is, is there a command for me to obey? Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin for me to avoid? Is there something I want to thank God for? Is there a promise I can call my own? Is there a blessing I can enjoy? There's a, I'll just keep reading those questions out. But you've got two minutes. Find one or two people near you. Turn around to them. And I want you to actually discuss this with them. And if you don't, don't feel comfortable with it, just sit in on people talking. You know, Just be part of it. So two minutes. Go for it. So I'm going to put the passage back up again. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Is there a command for me to obey? Is there a good example for me to follow? Is there a sin for me to avoid? Is there something I want to thank God for? Is there a promise that I can call my own? Is there a blessing that I can enjoy? Is there a failure from which I can learn? Is there a victory for me to win? So you've got two minutes. Go for gold. Is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin for me to avoid? Maybe a sin is selfish ambition or conceitedness. Maybe an example you could follow is that I will treat others the way that Christ treated treated us. Is there something I want to thank God for? Maybe you want to thank God for Jesus' death and resurrection. 
to set you free? Is there a victory for me to win? Maybe it's a victory over selfish ambition. Maybe you struggle to put others first and you get so caught up in your own world and you suck everyone into that world. Maybe there's a victory you need to win there. All right, you got 30 seconds. You know, it's, it's good for us to put this into action because we're talking about putting knowledge into action. So why not just do it now, you know? All right, 10 seconds and we'll wrap it up. But you can keep this conversation going with others. So application points, is there a good example for me to follow? Yes, let's jump into 2 Corinthians 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. There's an example. That's an action that we can take. Is there a sin for me to avoid? Selfishness and conceitedness, which is... Another way you can say this is pride and vanity. Who, who's, who's got it, looks at themselves in the mirror every now and then, it's like, oh, I need to avoid this sin of pride and vanity. Anyway, is there a blessing that I can enjoy? Yes. And these are just examples, but you need to go create your own. I am no longer under the curse of sin, but because Jesus overcame sin. Therefore, I will shift my focus Onto what Jesus did right, not what I have done wrong. You know, there are so many applications that we can take from here. And I just wanted you to get your, your mind going. I wanted you to, like, I want, I want us to be upskilled when we go and do an exegesis of the Bible. Because when we start to realize that it's more than just what we are reading on the paper, and we realize that it's alive, that the Spirit is moving through the Word, and that we are able to find freedom and truth and liberation through the Bible alone, that is an amazing thing. So when we come and look at Philippians 2, 1 to 11, and we look at the exegesis of understanding Jesus through the biblical narrative, we understand that Jesus is so much more. Jesus died on the cross for us to set us free. Jesus understands your suffering because he was human. If we did not have a God or a Messiah or a Savior, he didn't understand our suffering, it will be it wouldn't be the same. But he can empathize with us. It says in the Bible that there's no sin common to man, a.k.a. basically meaning that Jesus knows your hardship, yet he has shown you a way out of that valley. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that you are true. You are truth, that you are above all things. God, we thank you that even when we struggle, that you have... You understand our struggles because you yourself came and died as a human. 
God, I pray as we go from here, Lord, that we'll be inspired to read your word, to, to understand you more through, the, the, through exegesis. But Holy Spirit, I just pray as we go from here that your word remains in our spirit. Lord, we bless the food, the hands that made it. In Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Exegesis. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me play in this arena of exegesis because I know that it's it's a lot more fun than than uh, for me than it might be for you. But I encourage you that if we lean in, push push harder, and really dig deep into the Word of God, that God will you'll start to see transformation happen. Don't give up, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.